Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So for this last episode, I wanted to talk about, just ra- try to wrap everything up, try to put a little bow on it. And and sort of present an overall summary of like what I think the case is. So first off, I want to talk about the songwriting. So I think you can debate whether or not the Beatles were the like Lennon and McCartney in particular were the great greatest songwriters of the era. It's sort it sort of depends on uh, your definition. They were certainly extraordinarily innovative, even from their earliest days. They broke pretty much every rule in the book. And I think you can safely say that you can, can you can look at early Beatles songs and see something similar to some Tin Pan Alley songs and then you could maybe look at later Beatles songs, particularly uh, Elder Scales When I Want You, and maybe see some similarities with Black Sabbath, but you certainly can't see any similarities between Tin Pan Alley and Black Sabbath. As an example, to pick one band out of many. They are linking the drastic change in in the way of writing songs from the 40s and 50s to the 70s. The Beatles are connected to that change in more ways than just about anyone else. You know, I think the artistic freedom that people found in songwriting, maybe lyrically more comes from Bob Dylan, but in terms of actually the way they construct songs comes from the Beatles in terms of fooling around with choruses and verses and bridges and breaking away from those conventions, adding intros and conclusions and just, you know, and looking for other places to, for inspiration. On the other hand, while they were doing that, they also were just extremely popular. You know, their songs were extremely popular and often hid the fact that they were playing around with these songwriting conventions really aggressively at times. The Beatles have written more popular music standards than any other songwriters from the 60s. At least for a long period, you could say they probably wrote more radio hits than anyone else until more recently. You know, there's been a changing the guard and there's been a ton of people who have, you know, you could like, there, there are people who have had as many hits as the Beatles, but often those hits weren't written by the same people. I'm thinking of like someone like Whitney Houston, who had some, like, you know, at one point tied the Beatles record for the most songs in the top 10. Mm-hmm. But those songs weren't written by the same people. So I think, you know, that you could, you could make a, a number of claims about their influence in terms of songwriting, certainly in terms of the construction, but also the fact that the weird constructions they used got to places you know, that they might not have if they weren't so catchy. And then also, of course, they're just everywhere anyway. And so you couldn't, you couldn't avoid them, you know, <laughs> and that, I think that has something to do with influence, uh, whether, whether or not we like it, you know, if you can't avoid something, it's going to be influential. Obviously, lyrically, this is less true. You know, they were, you know, we talked a little bit in the course of this podcast about the lyrics not always being that great, but you know, I think uh, everything's relative. If you go back to early 60s popular music and listen to lyrics, lyrics are bad, you know, generally speaking. Um, prior to Bob Dylan, lyrics in most English language songs are bad. Um, there's the odd one that's pretty good, but most of them are pretty bad. And certainly the Beatles didn't transform lyrics anywhere near as much as Bob Dylan did. But I think you could say that they definitely drastically improved over time. And, and Lennon in particular became quite, relatively speaking, a successful lyricist. By the end of the 60s, you could say he, he had established himself as the best British popular music songwriter in the world, you know, among British people. I'm being redundant there, but you know what I mean? Like among yeah. the British songwriters, there was nobody really to equal him. 
even though again i would not like hold his you know i think comparing his lyrics to someone like bob dylan is, is rather silly you know and and he definitely i think you look at ray davies and pete townsend as carrying the torch further and maybe got better over time but like you know they were very much in the shadow of him and you know you can talk about mick jagger keith richards i don't i think maybe mick jagger you could look at some of his lyrics and say you know here's somebody else who over time got a lot better but you know they they still all all three of these people uh jagger uh davies and Townsend, operated in the shadow and i don't know i think it it's safe to say that even if he you don't objectively think he's a better lyricist than those three people like he was influential on these people and it's hard to deny that i think the longer you sort of go out into time you have many people who you could argue were you know british songwriters who are of his equal or better i'm thinking of people like nick lowe and elvis costello but of course they also wrote under the influence of john lennon and paul mccartney and also george harrison and i think that's that's important to think about in terms of again this this sort of the question of influence in time that like there weren't really great British songwriters in the popular music world prior to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. They didn't really exist. You know, there's not. Yeah, really... like I was, I was about to interrupt, but but what about the British invasion? I was like, oh wait, no, shut up. That was that was not pre, and yeah. there wasn't that much of that anyway. So yeah, uh, yeah, and like, and I'm trying to think of a, and I can't. So yeah, oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it really is. And 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 you know that I mean there were. Like the fact is, is that the pop song tradition in the U.S. was just much, much stronger prior to the to rock and roll in terms of actual, like, in terms of its endurance uh, to this day and how long it lasted. But like, because a lot of the stuff that was being written in the U.K. was sort of more just for you know, like for vaudeville and, and stuff like that, music hall. Anyway, so I think you know they they have these sort of dual roles. One, you can look at. Uh, John Lennon is possibly being the most significant songwriter in popular music in the UK, or certainly among the very most significant. And also, of course, broader sense, what I was saying a moment ago about the construction, how they change the 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 way pop songs are written. I think it's safe to say the Beatles were the like hardly the most accomplished rock musicians of their era. You know, you could you could point to George Harrison as for a brief time possibly the best rock and roll guitarist in the world, but that was a period of maybe a year. Um, he was soon eclipsed by a revolution in rock guitar playing, including innovative techniques and sound effects and stuff like that. And of course, Harrison and Lennon helped cause that, but of course, they like were soon eclipsed. I'm thinking of people, of course, like Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, and of course, most infamously, Jimi Hendrix. And and Harrison was the closest thing the Beatles had to a virtuoso, at least on one instrument. McCartney was the most versatile musician, and he was extremely competent. But he was never more than extremely competent. You know, I think you can you can look at some of his performances on bass, on guitar, on keyboards, etc. You know, and 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 look at him being a very good musician. But like, you're never going to look at him and be like, you know, he he changed technique or anything like that. And of course, John Lennon was, you know, a fine a capable guitar player, a capable piano player, but and a capable market player, that's it. And infamously, Ringo Starr, there's that apocryphal joke that John Lennon didn't actually say, but supposedly said about Ringo Starr not even being the best drummer in the Beatles. They were, they were not. <laughs> yeah, that turns out I tried to find the source of that. And, I, and I, what I did find is actually an article about how there is no source for it. Turns out, sounds like something John Lennon would have said. 
It 100% sounds like something Lennon would have said. Apparently, he did not say it. I call shenanigans on that, but whatever. <laughs> just because I, I want it to be true. Yeah. That's all. But, like, I think men in particular, I feel like, especially musicians, can get kind of focused on musicianship as the standard to which you, you judge musicians. Just, like, are, what are their chops like? You know, especially in the world of jazz or, or in, in higher art classical music. But even what? even in the rock world, I think there's people who you know who are like you know will like worship musicians who are very very good or incredible, even when they say can't write songs. You know, I was just gonna say I don't think that's necessarily something that's limited to musicianship. I think that's something about a lot of areas, like maybe where areas where competition are. Yeah, but there's this idea that the virtuosity of a player or musician or whatever they are trumps a lot of other things yeah i mean look at the i'll talk about something i have absolutely no idea about but the like the um the slam dunk competition and all that for yeah the nba or the or even, version of it, the, in the nhl they have like the goal scoring whatever you're called i don't know what it's called so i don't really watch it anymore but it's focused on such a niche element of the game and a lot of um onus and um not chutzpah, but um, stock, whatever you want to call it for a player, is put into how they play in one of those things. Maybe not necessarily how they play on a team. I'd go even further and say sometimes in, in say, the NBA, for example, people care about scoring only and mm. don't care about anything else. And mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. this person scored 32 points per game this season. Yeah, yeah, but they can't play defense. And then some people are like, well, it doesn't matter. They scored 32 points per game. Like, but Best defense is a good offense, bro. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like, I, and like, certainly, I am, I am predisposed to like people who are more multi-dimensional, just uh, for whatever reason. But I do think that, like, you know, there, there's a tendency to celebrate in, in some world, especially, especially certain music fan circles, to celebrate musicianship as sort of the be-all, end-all. You know, and like, you know, I. I still like some prog rock bands. I used to be a very, very big fan of prog rock and the prog rock no. musicianship is everything. Well, not everyone knows that. You know, I know you know <laughs> that, but not everyone knows that. Musicianship is everything in the prog rock world. Like people think it's more yep. important than whether or not you wrote a the song. song sounds good. Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. And I mean, and, like, and to throw it back, I think that was, that was also to a certain extent the problem. One of the reasons why I never really liked Baroque music a lot. Yeah. Like I liked when I was younger and I was starting to fall down the classical hole. Like I got into romantic more than Baroque and some other styles more than Baroque because Baroque was just, it was just technical for being technical sake, not for sounding good. And I think to a certain extent you're saying the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I actually quite like uh, Baroque music, but I hear what you're saying about it. I think you're absolutely right. It is very much just like how, how crazy can we get this? You know, how many voices can we have (laughs) playing at the same time and stuff like that? And, you know, there's, I, I mean, I can think of any number of bands that get like, and and uh, musicians who get attention. You know, I was just, um, I've been watching a lot of like over the last few years. I've been watching a lot of reaction videos of people listening to classic rock and prog rock and metal for the first time because I enjoy seeing people get excited about it and reminding me of the way I felt when I was like eighteen years old. And like mm-hmm. one of the things I saw, I was watching a a guy react to a, a live performance of Deep Purple. And in the comments are all these people saying like, like Deep Purple really were the most talented of those bands. And I was thinking like, so what, you know, their songs suck. Turns out that 
the reason no one, no, you know, people still talk about Sabbath and Zeppelin, but they don't talk about Deep Purple is because Deep Purple songs are kind of garbage. You know, it doesn't matter if they have better musicians in that band. Like nobody remembers Deep Purple because their lead singer couldn't write lyrics to save his life. And they didn't write as compelling music overall. And in, in the book, I make reference to Ingwe Malmsteen, who is somebody I think a lot of people probably don't know about anymore because he's disappeared off the face of the earth, as far as I know. And now there's a million like incredible guitar players on YouTube who sort of usurped his position in the world. But Ingwe Malmsteen is a guy who is technically an incredibly proficient guitar player, but like I don't want to listen to his music. I, I try, I've tried, <laughs> you know? It is, as many people have noted, essentially masturbation. And, you know, it's like saying you you prize musicianship over everything is a little bit like saying you think Ingwe Malmsteen is a better, more significant guitar player than Neil Young. And that, yeah, and that's a very, that's a a conversation I had with a friend of mine a million years ago when he had his first band. Yeah. And like, they were all super talented musicians, like sort of like Lennon in the sense that you they just they, they could all play everything under the sun and everything they did they were good at McCartney um McCartney I guess yeah, yeah. McCartney is more like that but like like the one the one guy he you know would pick up a clarinet and two weeks later he'd be yeah. the best clarinet player you've heard locally I know something um, like that. yeah but you know what but when he got up to play on stage the shows were terrible hmm. like it, it was a very boring show to go see because it was just essentially them doing musical masturbation. Yeah. And when they changed their front man to one of the other members of the band who was a little bit more personable and they started to relax a little bit more, their whole dynamic changed. Like they still had some some musicianship and they still got to do all their fun solos and such and show off and do all that. But their stage presence changed entirely to be one of we're here to do what we need to to show off what we can do yeah. versus we're here to have a good time. And I think that's definitely something that um Maybe the Beatles did better than a lot of other bands. Well, exactly. Still... Like, is the Beatles were you know, like I said, McCart- like you just pointed out, McCartney can play could play anything. I've, I've, there's, I may have mentioned it before, but there's a, a show he did years and years ago. I think in the aughts, it was just a weird thing where he he did in front. He literally is just in a in a theater somewhere in um or or, or a concert hall somewhere in England, and he writes a song in front of people on like twenty different instruments. Like he just like records a bit loops it in, in like in front of an audience record goes to another instrument does does this like 20 times creates a song okay. in front of people yeah when did he do this I, I don't know like 2005 or something is he the one who's responsible for this terrible trend that we're seeing now what do you mean that's like half of TikTok well, every, social that's media. Been go- that's been going on that's been going on yeah. since i mean the beatles helped cause that but like that's been yeah. going on for decades i'm just no, saying it has it, it just feels like it's gotten a lot more it just feels the internet has become lousy yeah, but, with it. But that's like it, it, it used to be a cool thing you'd see a busker do with a loop station. Yeah. It was like, oh, that's kind of fun. And then Ed Sheeran happened and then that got less fun. And now everyone under the sun is just having a band all by themselves. And it makes me sad sometimes. But like McCartney didn't invent live looping. So, okay. Um, but anyway, I just mean he can perform a million instruments. And like yes. Harrison, of course, was very briefly, you could argue, the best rock guitarist in the world, the most important rock guitarist in the world. But otherwise, they are not, you know, legendary musicians. And they are very much more than the sum of their parts as musicians, I would say, because of their ability to play together, which is is very, I mean, even even at the end of the career, I think 
if you go watch get back and you watch the you watch the rooftop concert this is a band that hasn't played in front of an audience in in three years and they're you know they they put on a really good show for nobody for for literally a bunch of people standing on roofs and um you know they they generally speaking the musicianship was at the service of other things and i think that is important to point out just because when I'm making this claim that the Beatles are the greatest rock band of all time, I think a lot of people will be like, well, yeah, you know what though? Like they didn't have the best drummer. They didn't have the best bass player. They didn't have the best guitarist. They didn't have the best singer. Well, uh, first of all, Paul McCartney is an amazing singer, but secondly, it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> that's, that's not why we listen to music. And so I just wanted to like, get that out of the way yeah. because I think it's very clear that they weren't the best people at their instruments it doesn't matter. So I would say though, that at least very briefly, they were among the best rock and roll uh, live bands in the world, the best uh, live bands in the world before they, they got, you know, professionalized by their manager. Though I think that that changed very quickly, partly because their, um, you know, their shows got drowned out by screaming girls very, very quickly. I think, you know, if you, if you were to listen to any, I mean, the who have a famous live album from 1970, but like you go to any of their, find any of their performances online or any number of other bands, Grateful Dead, that kind of stuff from the late 60s, you could say, these are all better live bands. Sure. But, you know, they, they once again, they were trailblazers and in this regard, as I mentioned in a different episode, Lemmy famously made that uh, claim that, you know, the best band to see in the UK when he was yeah. young was the Beatles, not the Rolling Stones. But again, I think the case uh, for their importance doesn't necessarily rest on like how great they were as a live band it's one of those things that like it's different now with the internet and streaming but only so many people can see a live show and so for me the the importance of recorded music at least back in the 60s is more important because like there were very few live albums that came out but also very few people saw these bands live even when the Beatles were playing in like candlestick park and stuff and and you know they had 40 or 50,000 people in front of them there were still only 40 or 50,000 people their records were selling millions but also when when people did put out live albums of course they were edited to not act, you know to fix mistakes and stuff and so i think any argument that says no they're not one of the greatest rock bands of all time because they were maybe not the best live band of their era is also i i'm not sure i really buy and I think that's a different sort of category. And and honestly, like, I have no idea. I mean, obviously, the only stuff I've seen, really seen of the Beatles live is is the stuff or more heard. I've heard them on live at the BBC. I've heard them on Anthology. I've seen them in the rooftop concert. But like, it's, uh, you know, there's only so many people who saw other shows in the 60s that if they were better, you know, there's like very little documentation of it. It's a little bit like the tree falls thing, right? Like, you know, <laughs> if, yeah. a, if a tree falls in a forest and 10 people see it, whether as opposed to a tree falling and like the entire world sees it, like which tree is the one that fell over? Well, it's the one that the whole world saw, not the other one. Yeah. So one thing I do want to point out in, in all of this going over sort of different aspects of their music is I think that you can safely say that they were, perhaps the best arrangers of their era with a lot of help from George Martin, you know, and we don't know where that like line is between them and him, because of course he wrote some scores for them and he played some keyboard parts and he certainly guided them in various ways, but they were always thinking out of the box very quickly. They started incorporating other instruments, other sounds, things that shouldn't have been ma making on record. 
and they just really changed the way people thought about pop rock songs, how to put them together, not just from the songwriting perspective, as I was talking about a minute ago, but in terms of like the way you would, you would combine even this, uh, something as simple as uh, two guitars, a bass and drums, or in the case of the very early songs, harmonica, guitar, bass and drums, you know, and, and their willingness to use foreign, like non-rock percussion and then like foreign objects. Like at one point they, you know, they used to like a suitcase on an early record uh, instead of, instead of a proper percussion instrument among other things. And, and their, their embrace of uh, studio effects very early on and their embrace of Indian instruments and, and the harmonium as well, which is a French instrument, but which is associated with India, um, those kinds of things, you know, they really, I mean, no one else was really doing this initially. And then, then there was a huge wave of people doing it. Um, Frank Zappa, arguably being the most interesting of them, but also someone like John Cale uh, of the Velvet Underground. Um, but they, of course, were operating in a world that the Beatles had already been making, releasing music in for years. And I think that, honestly, there's just an absolute ton of innovative arrangement ideas in the Beatles catalog in that seven and a half years they were putting out music. You know, it's almost every song, there's like a, oh, well, that's a little weird. You know, not every single one, but almost everyone. And I think honestly, there's there's just nobody who really compares. I think, you know, there will of course be Beach Boys fans who say, well, like, what about Brian Wilson? But Brian Wilson was trying to get a particular type of sound almost all the time, you know, as opposed to the Beatles who were doing all sorts of different things. At the production level, they were of course officially not as involved as people today or even people in the 1970s. We don't know, again, like with the arrangements, we don't know where that line actually was because they weren't credited with being producers, really, for the most part, until Abbey Road, but they were definitely involved in terms of discussing with their producer and their engineers what they were doing. We just don't know where that was. So I think you can say, you know, they were maybe not as influential as producers as as somebody like Jimi Hendrix or as Frank Zappa, because he took over his own production soon, or Brian Wilson, or as... Oh, who else? Jimmy Page, people like that. But, you know, I think that's that's sort of a, a thing we can quibble about because, like, we really don't know the answer. They were definitely active consultants, at the very least, in the production of their albums. They may not have had, like, veto, but, you know, they did manage to convince the producer to, like, let, like release a record with feedback on it. And I'm not sure that was his idea, as an example. And, you know, the other thing is that the Beatles, of course, had less room in this regard they had they had a smaller box than the americans did you know they as as i pointed out earlier in the podcast they were working with two track initially up to eight track and i think maybe at the very end they might have had 16 or more but the very very end for like abbey road they might have had more than that but most of the time they were recording they of course had much more limited means and so you know whether or not they were actually doing the you know ordering the engineers around i think they were first of all they were working with a limited palette and did incredible things with it but also they it's not like they just were being told what to do by the producer all the time like previous acts had been of course it was a very normal thing you know the the music industry of the early 60s was a very producer a songwriter and producer dominated industry and i think regardless of the official credit for the Beatles, the Beatles showed that it could be the opposite way. Artists dominated as much as George Martin likely played a role in all of it. They still, you know, it certainly seems like in retrospect, they, they had more say than, than they should have given 
the way the world was when they first started recording. But I think all of this is missing the point. Um, and I think that's one reason why people sometimes underrate the Beatles at this remove. I think it's really easy to pick apart uh, what the Beatles were more notable for and what they were less notable for. But at the end of the day, nobody else can claim to have as much influence on so many fronts. Not Bob Dylan, not Frank Zappa, not Lou Reed, not Brian Wilson, not Elvis Presley. In this day and age, maybe, maybe James Brown because of the way hip-hop has taken over, but at least in terms of the rock music world, not James Brown. Why the Beatles were the unbelievably influential and path-breaking doesn't really have all that much to do with whether or not they wrote the best lyrics or play their instruments better than anyone else. It's, it's more their overall influence. So mm-hmm. I just want to go through the areas in which I think they have been influential for good or ill. First off, I want to start with anything called alternative. It might seem <laughs> very counterintuitive. First of all, I should explain what that is for young people, but alternative was a radio format in the 90s. And before that, it meant a, a genre of rock music influenced by punk, but not punk. Essentially, that's the simplistic way Mm-hmm. explaining it though it might seem counterintuitive because of the beatles popularity it's the beatles rule breaking created the idea that there could be alternative approaches to making popular music they were aggressively breaking rules of what the the bands on the radio were were doing and that's of course initially what alternative bands were defined by of course that changed in the 90s became just what was on the radio you can you can look at the reason alternative became a big thing in the 90s was because it was essentially rejecting what was on the radio in the 80s, specifically hair metal. But also, it was about a fusion of genres is the other the big influence here, right? You have within alternative, you have things like all country, all metal, you have these, and, and the alternative bands would pull from, from different genres, much like the classic rock bands that they were secretly influenced by did. And they did that because they were influenced by the Beatles, who would pull from different places to sort of create their own sound that didn't sound exactly like somebody else now this might st- sound like a bit of a leap but like everything comes from somewhere and yeah. if you ignore the punk part of it at least you know the sort of the a- essence of the like we're not what's on the radio right now we're not going to play by those rules and the genre mixing is very much the beatles now on the other hand the beatles also were hugely influential on arena rock unfortunately and that's loud rock music with hooks. You could argue that, you know, the arena rock is, is an extension in many ways of some aspects of the Beatles music. I think you could also sort of blame it on the kinks and the who, but certainly the, the Beatles were hugely responsible for a genre that I don't particularly like, 70s arena rock. The Beatles have actually been somewhat influential on various forms of art music. Uh, they have been covered frequently by jazz musicians and also by orchestras. Now, I don't know how influential they have been specifically on high art composers. I know there's a few who have acknowledged the Beatles influence officially, whereas like in terms of actually how much influence they've had, I'm not sure, but certainly the fact that jazz musicians have covered Beatles songs is notable and many, many, many Beatles songs, not like a couple Um, and, and routinely. I mean, that's the thing that jazz musicians do. They cover popular music, but still the genre of art rock, the Beatles along with Frank Zappa, and the major psychedelic artists created a genre of art rock, which is the mixing of rock and roll with art music and non-musical art. The Beatles did both of these things, so did Frank Zappa. But unlike Frank Zappa, the Beatles were on the radio. They created this <laughs> idea of art rock. They legitimized it. 
now art rock is so prevalent, people don't know it exists. If if you were to listen to, you know, I understand rock music is basically dead at this point, but there's so much music um, throughout, uh, particularly the 90s and aughts and, and before that, that there's weird shit that comes in that is from other things outside of rock music, where, you know, if that had happened 30 or 40 years earlier, someone would be like, what the hell is going on? That's not normal. But it's totally fine because the Beatles made it totally fine to do that. You know, and whether you pick on, you know, look at David Bowie or I'm thinking of the 70s art, art music people, David Bowie, Roxy music, people like that. They're heavily, heavily influenced by the Beatles. Another genre hugely dependent on the Beatles is avant rock or experimental rock, two different names, same thing. Though you could say Frank Zappa was the true pioneer of the genre because he essentially invented it. The Beatles contributed as well, most notably with Revolution Number no. 9 and also with, um, and now it of course escapes me, uh, the last track on Revolver. <laughs> Why can't I uh, remember the name of it? Um, but also um, I'm the Walrus, stuff like that. The idea of like taking, being a rock musician and taking music to places where it stops resembling uh, rock music entirely. So. The Beatles also influenced country. Wait, what? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one country has slowly embraced popular music over the years, and now recently has just completely embraced it. But you know, Beatles wrote country songs. They covered country songs, and their use of a country instrument on their records crossed over that crossed over. And they weren't the only band by any means. It was you know many bands in the sixties in particular. But yeah, because like. I guess the I guess my surprise is I don't recall ever hearing in the country that I've listened to I've never picked up on a Beatles influence. Like I know like the Beatles definitely were influenced by folk country and so on and so forth, but I just never heard it go the other way too. Well, so they're definitely country covers of Beatles songs, but I think it's also just in terms of the arrangements and musicianship like, you know, how how like Backbeat has come in much more to country over the last 50 years. For example, the use of electric guitars more frequently. Oh, okay, 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 um, okay. I that, see what you're saying. That kind of thing. Um, yeah, now, yeah. obviously, they weren't the only band to do this, but like, like, like to take Bakersfield, for example, Bakersfield Country in the late 60s was reacting against Nashville getting too close to like the mainstream of pop music. And one, one aspect of the mainstream pop music they were getting too close to was. Beatles music. And that continued particularly with the country rock, country pop boom of the 70s, in which a whole bunch of Beatles influenced artists made music that was too pop or too rock for country music on the whole, but was way more country than anything that had been on the mainstream radio, aside from the Beatles and the Birds prior to that. And then that sort of blended to the point where, you know, there have been the numerous reactions to uh, the, the sort of popification of country such as the new traditionalists, the neo-traditionalists, outlaw country, all those things, those have all been reacting against the creeping influence of pop rock and now, and now other things like metal and hip-hop. But, you know, a huge chunk of that was powered by the Beatles, not just the Beatles' popularity, but also the fact that the Beatles did actually play country music a little bit, and mm -hmm. that made the inroads easier. You know, like, I've just seen a face, for example, of McCartney's song, that's a country song, basically, in many ways. And like, it would be very, very easy for a uh, a country musician to cover that straight up and not really be accused of any kind of heresy. Okay, okay. 
The Beatles have influenced electronic musicians, and that might seem also a little weird, but it's absolutely no. not. They were not the first band at a rock band to use samples, but they were very close to it. They were like the second band. They also uh, released the first ever extended sample in popular music history on a single anyway. They use tape manipulation. They use electronic, early electronic instruments. Though again, not necessarily first, they were the most popular people to do it. And I, you know, I, I think if you listen to Tomorrow Never Knows, that song I couldn't remember a minute ago from the end of Revolver, those drums sound like, like the Chemical Brothers to me, basically. But they helped create a world in which, you know, in the 70s, all these people took up these instruments, whether it was uh, the Moog synthesizer or the Mellotron, or like whether it was a, an actual synthesizer or a sequencer or a tape tape manipulator and then they used studio editing as well to create you know there was a big flowering for people who don't know there was a big flowering of german electronic music in the 70s much of it influenced to at least some degree by the beatles and some other bands of the uh, psychedelic bands of the of the 1960s and then that eventually led to many 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 years well first it led to synth pop and then later it went to uh, electronic dance music Again, they are not the most influential in the space, but they were influential in the space, certainly on the early and the earliest musicians. They also had an influence on folk. Again, not a bad, not a good one. Just like with country, they wrote folk songs occasionally. Um, they played songs with folk instruments. They made it very easy for like singer guitarists by themselves to uh, play their own songs. And they sort of, along with uh, Simon and Garfunkel. They sort of also created this world in which you could like sort of imagine folk is not folk anymore, you know, like as this like loud booming thing rather than a person with a guitar singing. And unfortunately, I think that was not for the best, but like it absolutely for a little while anyway, there was almost a like not orchestral folk, but you would have these like songs that were supposedly folk songs presented with this like, you know, huge massive arrangements behind them. And, thinking particularly of Simon and Garfunkel there, but like there were other people doing it as well. And again, not necessarily the best, but fortunately there are still people with guitars singing songs by themselves without orchestras behind them. So they didn't actually ruin that genre. Uh, they of course invented folk rock itself, had a big influence on it. Maybe not as big as the birds that came later, but still fairly, fairly big influence on that general. I, I mentioned before John Lennon's hilarious claim about um ticket to ride being the first metal song obviously it was not however a uh, helter skelter is certainly one of the loudest songs of 1968 the year metal was born and i want you she's so heavy is a also as close to metal as you got in 1969 but i wouldn't say that's the real impact on hard rock and heavy metal from them i'd say rather it's uh, their experimentation with different sounds and their elaborate arrangements certainly led zeppelin is unimaginable without the beatles and I think you can also just say a more indirect uh, influence on um, not just metal, but some other uh, genres that didn't exist until the late 60s and later is that the desire to find the next new thing that was different from anything else, say something like Black Sabbath, comes from a world in which the Beatles had helped create where it was like not about finding the next band that sounded like another band, but rather the next new thing. That is, of course, very indirect influence. I think their influence on City Zeppelin is much clearer than it is on a band like Sabbath. But like, still, not only were they louder than people think they were, and essentially playing early metal on a couple tracks, but also they really did create a world where artistic innovation was 
a bigger deal in the pop rock world. It had not been a big deal when they started. I'm going to maybe get pilloried for this, but they have an influence on hip hop. And that influence is, of course, samples. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's pro- obviously the real influence on hip hop from the 60s is, uh, is, is toasting and, and, and sound, uh, what are they called? Sound um, systems from Jamaica. However, in, on the production side of things, the, Beeple, the Beatles opened up the use of found music in popular music. It had been going on in classical music for years, but it wasn't going on in popular music very much. And they made it normal uh, to do that. And also their use of the studio as a, essentially an instrument as edit, studio editing to create new sounds was hugely important on the evolution of production, which eventually, you know, you know, now everything today is, is essentially influenced by hip hop production, but like it comes from somewhere and yes, it comes from the sound systems, but the, the technical side of it was influenced by the Beatles. I mentioned folk rock earlier, Jangle Pop, the successor of folk rock was also very heavily influenced by the Beatles and the Birds. It's essentially the same influence. As I mentioned before, the Beatles have been covered many, many times by jazz musicians, uh, like every successful pop act. But they also, um, you could argue, influenced some other aspects, notably either uh, fusion or electric jazz. That is the idea of electrifying instruments that weren't normally electrified in a jazz group, but also the idea of editing in the studio, editing your live performances in the studio and presenting them. So in the past, prior to the mid-60s, jazz recorded in the studio, you would edit a a performance together. Sometimes you would edit different solos together to create one solo, but the whole point was to not know that the audience shouldn't know there was editing. That changed with people like Miles Davis when it was all about showing that it was edited together, and that was very much influenced by the Beatles as well as uh, some non-musical stuff like French New Wave. But certainly... I don't know that Miles Davis listened to music concrete. He might have, but I know he listened to the Beatles and Frank Zappa. I mean, I've seen him admit it. And, and this, you know, to many people, it ruined jazz, but it changed certain aspects of jazz. Unfortunately, the Beatles uh, were hugely influ- influential on um, what you might call New Age or Muzak, you know, particularly with like the endless covers of yesterday, slight, mm-hmm. slight like instrumental covers of yesterday. They helped create a world in many ways in which, um, you know, sort of easy, listless, energyless uh, instrumental covers of, uh, they didn't do this themselves, but they certainly created a world where that was a very normal thing. Uh, It had already sort of existed beforehand, but it became much more easy to do with all these famous songs. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think the Beatles making sort of, really catchy songs sort of the biggest thing in the world i had a had a role to play in this they uh i think you could you could say that they had an influence again on two genres you might not expect and that being new wave and post-punk both of those are heavily influenced by 70s art rock and i already talked about how the beatles had influenced 70s art rock i mean many of those bands would probably say they weren't influenced by the beatles but of course they were influenced by bands that were influenced by the beatles so Obviously, pop music, just mainstream pop music. The Beach Boys arguably had a more larger impact of that, but certainly the Beatles' catchiest and poppiest songs were everywhere. And they're famous for their three-part harmonies, and they're famous for their elaborate 
arrangements on their um, their least rock songs. You could also say that like the new the the trend maybe a, a decade ago of mashups was also a little presage, uh, presaged by the Beatles because of uh, both the Beatles' uh, experimentation in the studio, but also their habit of taking uh, multiple for song fragments written by different members and sticking them together. They had an influence on power pop, just like they did on arena rock, though I think you could say the Who had a bigger influence. Obviously, the Beatles were a bigger band in the 60s and very much about catchy catchy but loud songs, loud for the era, of course, not loud anymore. I think Big Star, the, the 70s, the seminal 70s power pop band is, is very clearly hugely indebted to the Beatles. Prog rock, here we go again. We're back to prog rock. Uh, <laughs> very clearly influenced by the Beatles. You know, uh, Pink Floyd, the most uh, successful prog rock band in history, commercially is hugely influenced by the Beatles. The Dark Side of the Moon, there are chunks of Dark Side of the Moon that sound very, very similar to chunks of Beatles music. The Beatles' use of non-rock instruments, as well as orchestras, and just ideas from traditional older high art music was hugely influential on various prog rock bands. You know, I would say, like, also Genesis, another prog rock band, very, very clearly uh, indebted to the Beatles in their early days. Psychedelic music, obviously hugely influenced by Beatles, and so we're talking not just about psychedel- the psychedelic music of the 60s, but neo-psychedelia, which has been an ongoing thing since the early 80s, basically. The Beatles were not the first psychedelic band, but they were the biggest psychedelic band in the world for a couple of years. So one of the central premises of early British punk music is that the British invasion shouldn't have happened, and it was bad. And I think you could say there are probably Americans who would say this, but I mean, the New York Dolls and Ramones were clearly indebted to the British invasion. So I don't, I, I'm not sure how that works. But, you know, a lot of early British punks seem to believe that everything they hated about music uh, came from the Beatles sort of professionalizing music. I think that's true to a point, but I think that's not entirely true because certainly pub rock, which is something that morphed into both punk and new wave, was hugely indebted to the Beatles songwriting, if nothing else. And also, I would just say, go listen to London Calling. <laughs> and tell me that has nothing to do with the white album i mean i can tell you that all day i'm i'm up for a good argument anytime i don't know how i defend that position though yeah yeah i mean the scope of that record and sandinista are very clearly influenced by the white album there's no way of getting around it i think like you can look at the sex pistols and say sure they were rebelling against a lot of this stuff but not so sure about the clash and anyway um i think you know there's a a lot of punk bands regardless of how, especially once they get popular, regardless of how they might claim to not be influenced by the British invasion, they are. Because most most punk bands are not actually repeating 1956 rock and roll. Some of them are, but most of them are not. And just broadly, as a whole, the genre of pop rock, as I've said multiple times throughout the podcast, is hugely influenced by the Beatles in, in, every, in every aspect of it. You know, it's it essentially pop rock, became a term because of the Beatles that they needed to combine the two together because the Beatles were doing both of them at a time when no one else was. There's no conception of a rock band as a genre hopping, do anything they feel like band without the Beatles. I'd say most, most bands in, are willing to, to deviate from their lane, at least occasionally. There's the odd band that like ACDC that just does the same thing all the time, but most bands do a little deviation here and there, at least, if not more. And that comes from a world that the Beatles created, you know, and no one has had more influence on the different genres within pop rock than the Beatles have. I think 
you can say, you know, the 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 joke is or the the claim is that the Beatles killed the rock and roll. And I guess that's true. They certainly changed it. They also caught created a world in which rock and roll had to be revived for some people to like they rediscovered its essence and you get roots rock and stuff as reactions to the world in which they created it. But regardless, they changed it whether or not they killed it. And of course, as I've said many times in the book, the world's most famous rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones, were of course hugely influential by the Beatles, uh, influenced by the Beatles, you know, including performing a number of Beatles songs early in the day. Okay, so that is that's an incomplete list, probably, of all the different genres they've influenced. But before we end, I also just want to just you know state a few other things about their records and 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 what I think they did overall. So with their debut album, Please Please Me, they arguably created, they released the first pop rock album of all time, and they created a need for that term. Uh, they refined the aesthetic with, with the Beatles, but with A Hard Day's Night, they invented folk rock, which was the dominant form of popular music in 1965 and 1966. Not that anyone knows that now. I Feel Fine brought feedback to the radio for the first time. Beatles for Sale brought increasingly sophisticated songwriting and experimental arrangements into folk rock. Help maybe one of the single definitive folk rock albums, but it also introduced a standard for the Beatles. The A-Tripper, We Can Work It Out, introduced the double A side and uh, new levels of variety into the single format. I think you could argue Rubber Soul was the greatest rock album of all time up to that point. You could argue that it was actually uh, Highway 61 Revisited, but it's between the two of them, and set new standards for all pop rock was imagined and measured, whether it's in terms of the songs, the arrangements, the production. The B-side Rain introduced backmasking, one of the most overused studio tricks in rock music, to the general public. Revolver, you could argue, was the most innovative album of all time when it was released, or certainly it was less innovative than Freak Out, which came out two months before. Nobody listened to Freak Out, everyone listened to Revolver. It contained more genres than any other previous album of the Beatles, including actual aspiring Indian music, and included more studio tricks than any other album in history up to that point. Again, with possible apologies to freak out. Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane may be the greatest pop rock single uh, released. And certainly at its time, it was the most innovative single ever released at its time in terms of its combination of studio trickery and thematic similarities. Sgt. Pepper has been talked about a million times. It was at the time, in many people's eyes, the most innovative album ever made. Again, you could like look at some Zappa albums and say, well, maybe they were, but you know, again, who was listening to them? compared to Sgt. Pepper. They participated in the first ever worldwide satellite broadcast with All You Need Is Love. I Am The Walrus, a B-side, included um, many, many innovations, including the the longest uh, complete sample on a single to that point, and possibly longs for a very long time. Lady Madonna announced the end of psychedelia two years into the psychedelic era, way before most people uh, noticed. Hey Jude was one of the longest singles of all time. The Beatles, aka the White Album, introduced the Kitchen Sink album and essentially destroyed the last remaining rules in pop rock. Their failed Get Back project introduced the idea of a Vact Basics overdub free album as a solution to recording studio excess at a time when everyone in the world was doing too much in the studio. And I think Abbey Road, you could say, is one of the great albums of, of ever, but certainly of the 1960s, and also helped introduce the Moog synthesizer. And for better or worse, let it be helped introduce the country rock pop, country pop boom. And that is just a very slight, <laughs> slight uh, summary of what they've done. Uh, for better or worse. Yeah, for better or worse. So, sum up 
Um, and I made this point before, but I'm going to make it again. At the end of the 19th century, classical music was a fairly coherent and relatively universal thing. Within slightly more than half a century, it was a collage of all sorts of different types of music, some of them utterly unrecognizable to a late 19th century observer. It had undergone a profound change and fracturing. So there was not any longer one dominant form of music made by professional musicians, and these musicians weren't confined to perform within certain rules. You know, Western classical music had previously followed a very straightforward path with changes taking place over centuries, not years or decades. You know, um, as we talked about at the beginning of this, religious music had been standardized, evolved into Renaissance music, it evolved into super, super complex Baroque music you were just complaining about, then it evolved into more melody focus of classical, then it got all about passion and romantic era. And these had all been fairly distinct eras with not a lot of difference. And then things fell to pieces um, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. You got Impressionism, you got atonality, you got Serialism, you got various forms of Modernism, Modernism denoting all sorts of different things. Then you also got Neo-Baroque music, Neoclassical, Neo-Romantic, all sorts of things all happening at the same time made by people who are all essentially these professional musicians. And then, of course, you got music concrete and indeterminacy and later minimalism, all these different kinds of music all competing to be what was once essentially just one form of music. And of course, as we talked about at the beginning of this too, the same thing happened to jazz in the 40s and 50s. Jazz had begun as a standardization and professionalization of amateur music, this time being, you know, the blues, essentially. And, you know, uh, it had become increasingly complex, evolving into music performed by large traveling orchestras very, very quickly, too, you know, only by the late 20s. And then there was a reaction. And when there was that reaction to that, things fell apart. And, and you got bebop, you got Afro-Cuban, you eventually got more things in the 50s with hard bop, and then things that were utterly... Un- just like with classical music, things that are utterly unrecognizable to people who would have been into jazz in the 20s, something like free jazz or even just something like modal jazz, and then things like third stream blending, trying to blend uh, jazz and classical together, that kind of thing. So, of course, in the early 1960s, popular music had not undergone anything like that. It, for one thing, it wasn't even standardized yet. It was, and it wasn't super professional. I mean, you had professional songwriters. You had some people who were professional musicians, but like a lot of the pop singers were actually also actors. And um, a lot of the pop, um, the people outside of pop in the uh, rock and, and roots world were were professionals in the sense they did it for money, but they were unschooled, they were untrained. So different from higher musicians. But by the end of the 1960s, this music had undergone a completely radical, radical change. It had essentially, in many ways, evolved into a form of art music on its own, uh, with aspirations to much bigger, grander statements and being evaluated on the same level as art music. And of course, the band at the center of all this was the Beatles. Um, they were there at the beginning of the professionalization, and they were there at the fracturing. It's a little bit of as if Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Debussy, and Schoenberg were one person. Or if Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Ornette Coleman, and John Coltrane were in the same band. I'm not comparing the Beatles to Bach as composers or Beethoven, and I'm not comparing them as musicians to any of the jazz musicians I mentioned. It's more about their impact on the way the uh, 
genre changed and expanded okay. to, to try and make it to hip hop. I don't know anything about hip hop, but a little bit like imagine if NWA and Wu Tang were the same group. I assume maybe throw in some other people there. I mean, we'd probably have to go back earlier, right? To the eighties guys. But like, yeah, I, I can't make comparison to hip hop because I don't know anything about it. But um, <laughs> the point being that yeah. they were there at the standardization and professionalization of the genre. And they were there at the fracturing, all of which happened in a couple of years in a, a similar process had taken uh, high, Western high art music centuries and had taken jazz decades. And they were the central figures in this. And that to me is why they are the greatest rock band of all time. Finney. Finney. Yeah. That's it. How do you feel? Angry. Angry. Most of all. Well, good. That's what I wanted. That's what I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm just angry that you actually had a coherent point that I agree with, and that's just not <laughs> acceptable to me. Not acceptable. Well, but no, it was. Yeah, I, I thought it was. Um, I definitely wasn't on board at the start, but I'm a lot more on board now. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. You know, I, I, I try to be as open-minded as I possibly can be. It, it's a struggle, as everybody knows. It's it's a struggle to not continue to believe the things that you have always believed, but. You know, I, I do like to think that I am open to another candidate if someone has one, but like mm -hmm. the ones I am aware of, and as I'll, I'll restate those, the biggest, most obvious ones, at least in terms of his historical impact, are Bob Dylan and Frank Zappa and the Velvet Underground, and I guess Brian Wilson, at least in terms of rock music. If you expand it yeah. further, then James Brown has to be in there too. Uh, they just don't have the cakes. You know, and with Frank Zappa and Velvet Underground, it's a popularity thing. And with Bob Dylan, it's like he didn't play enough forms of music. He didn't do enough in the studio. He didn't innovate in the same way. And with Brian Wilson, he also didn't innovate in the same way, just differently. Like he he stuck to a very sort of certain type of music. So, you know, I I mean, I'm open to that. I tr one of the things I tried to do that one episode where I was going through the challenges is just like knock them off a little bit because like I as far as I know there isn't another candidate who had this kind of impact. Yeah. So I'd agree with that. Yeah, and if you go up further, like closer to the present in history, you just you lose the same level of influence, right? You can talk about how important Led Zeppelin was, or how important the Clash were, or how important Nirvana was, but like only on the people who came after them. You know, which is closer and closer to the present. And, uh, you know, there, there's something to be said, you know, for for being at the beginning or, or close to the beginning in the case of the Beatles, because they weren't there at the very beginning, but they were there, you know, not soon after. So that that is it at long last. Um, so, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do something like this again in the future. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs>